Today, this episode is brought to you by Stamps.com. Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly one million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. And within minutes, you're up and running. Printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping with Stamps.com's new rate advisor tool. You can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's absolutely no risk. And with my promo code POD, that's P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in POD, that's P-O-D. That's stamps.com, promo code P-O-D. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Ladies and gentlemen, especially if you have a small business, It is really, you know how hard it is to get things going. It's usually a one-man show. And I've had only positive experiences with Stamps.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here today with a scientist. Or is he a scientist? Or is he a spiritual leader? Or he has many hats, and they all blend into one hat. He, this is, um, I have with me Ernest Frobacher. Frobacher. I hope I got that right. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> Close enough. Good Frobacher. Frobacher. This, this yeah. is Andy Frobacher. Let me do my job and introduce you first, and then you can speak. That's <laughs> a very brief introduction because he's a Caltech physicist, an Apple evangelist, an evangelist, and a spiritual entrepreneur. Now, those, you know, you, you, you're uh, mixing science and I don't want to say religion because we're not talking about, yeah, it's, we're, it's like water and oil here, people would think, you know. Um, so, Ernie, how do you do it? I, I mean, before I get to the questions, how did you, well, let me stop. <laughs> <laughs> We're having more fun starting this interview than I think you do recording most interviews. I know. We always do. I always do. All right. Look, let me first ask you, where do you come from? You're from planet Earth. That's right. Right? 
I, I think so. I've had some skeptics who wonder, but yes. Uh, my, my favorite intro line that I actually use is, I'm from the future and I'm here to help. Oh, we love you already. Good, good. Don't go away. Stay with us. Okay, so um, are you from a certain area? I know you're in California, right? Because I know there are nine hours difference between us. Uh, there's, see, you're in California, I'm in Rome, so here it's past nine, there it's past noon. And um, where do you originally come from? Have you always been in the United States or do you come from another country? Right, so technically I was conceived in India. Uh -huh. And then when my mother was around uh, four or five months pregnant, she arrived in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and I was born in Chicago oh. in winter. Oh, so my, my mother, <laughs> Indian immigrant with my dad, who was a surgeon, came and did a heroic job with some help of some wonderful church people in adapting to a cold climate and a new oh, country and not being around family. It was quite an adventure for them. And that's really the origin story of my identity crisis, because I grew oh. up bicultural. Oh. And my older brother, who's a year and a half older than me and was born in India, he's always seemed both more Indian and oh. more American than I am. So I've kind of been a fish out of water. And because of that, I ended up studying uh, professionally physics and informally theology for, you know, the first half of my life. And so from my perspective, I never really, exp uh, I had this discussion on another podcast uh, about science and religion. And I realized that I think of science and religion as primarily processes yes. rather than results or authorities right, and techniques wait. rather than authorities. You're, going, you're jumping the gun. You're giving us the good point okay. <laughs> right in the beginning. We've got to get there slow. Well, oh, that's right. the throwaway line. That's the easy answer. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have many things in common. You were conceived and then came over and were dropped in Chicago. I was dropped in Rome. Six months, my parents decided to immigrate immigrate to the United States, Ellis Island. That's how we went into New York, into the greater New York area. So, you know, I was a really baby, baby, baby. And uh, so the same, you know, bicultural, bilingual, by everything. And um, so so we had, too, this, a background, a, a religious background in my family until I started saying, I don't know. I don't know, Dad. Please don't make me go to church with you. And then he said, he stopped after the fourth week and he said, Okay, Claudia, you just have to tell me that you will believe. You have to have faith. All right? That's good enough for me. That was good enough for me. So that was the end of that discussion with my dad. In your case, yeah, I hear rumbling. Your dog is rumbling. Sorry about back? that. No, no, that's okay. Let's tell he's, the audience. Yeah, he's he's. Yeah, yes, my my poor dog. Actually, my son's dog uh, uh, <laughs> did his bit to prevent prevent canine overpopulation by getting snipped last Friday, mm. and he's wearing a cone and he's trying to pick up a bone while oh. having the cone, which is possible but quite noisy. Oh. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll send him outside and let no. him uh, take care of it there. If you'll give me a second. Sure, I'll pause for a second. <laughs> Okay, so okay. the dog is outside, and now we can go. So we're going back to Chicago. Now, you're yeah. in Chicago, and um, of course, you didn't, you weren't born 
by everything. So you got to studying theology at a certain point. What brought you there? So my family has been Christian for nine generations, uh, mm -hmm. Protestant Christians going back to the beginnings of Protestant missions. So my parents were very involved. Uh, there's some wonderful people. My godmother, Shirley Sparks, God rest her soul, who adopted this poor immigrant family. Uh -huh. uh, and we were involved in church and that context. And so I think the first time I started studying religion or theology seriously, I was probably taking a correspondence course from the Moody Bible Institute. Oh. So learning to sort of study the Bible and do these things. And so that's kind of that track. And so my family context was all very much, uh, I would say, even a very fundamentalist strain of Christian oh. uh, growing up. Wow. And yeah, and so that was the one theological strain that I grew up in. And uh, that brought it into more of a sort of a general evangelical right. environment, both with them and, and my parents were uh, not strongly denominational, which was ah. unusual in the 1970s minute, in that because they came from outside. Wait a minute, when yeah. you say not strongly denominational for our audience, can you explain that? Sure. Uh, it's, it's hard to remember, but there was a time when Christianity was sort of the dominant cultural force in America, and therefore people were very... Uh, emotional about which particular sect they belonged to, whether you were a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Pentecostal. And my family, uh, we had some relatives who got very emotional about these things, but for the most part, they floated among these different camps within the Christian community because they're used to the Indian context where Christians were a tiny minority. Right, right. Yeah. So, so that's what, that's where you started. That's where you're theology background and what motivated to, uh, you to study theology. But at a certain point, you, I mean, physicist, a physicist, I mean, I dated a physicist myself I mean, for a long My time. Sympathies. <laughs> My sympathies. I, I dated two. <laughs> it is very difficult to understand. <laughs> the only thing we had in common was looking at the stars. Love that. <laughs> Now, um, they're wild people, wild people. I mean, wild in the sense of, God, I have to figure out where that head comes from, you know? <laughs> yeah, physicists are best understood as two things. One, as children who never grew up. Oh, now, and now the second oh, as you gave me the magician. I should have, this. had you told me that at the time, I would have understood perfectly. You, this is fantastic. And the second part is that they are frustrated teachers. Oh, oh. Because they love to understand things and they want everyone else to understand in the same way they do. And they get very frustrated because most people don't think like a hyper-intelligent two-year-old. <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Thank, thank you, Ernie. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> So, All so, of my seminars turned into turned into dating advice somehow. I'm not quite sure how that happens. <laughs> All right. So now, how, what brought you to study physics? So I distinctly remember when I was in junior high, and I picked up a book on modern physics, which was, I think, the discovery of quarks. Uh -huh. And I just became deeply enamored with this idea that the world in its infinite complexity reduces down to a small number of basic elements whose properties can, in principle, be understood. Uh -huh. And it's like, okay. wow, this is amazing. Right. And 
looking back, I can see that this was part of my search to try to find the absolute, to try to find meaning amidst my cultural bifurcation that I was living in. Right. Okay. Now, did it work? Give yes and no. Meaning. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I guess going back to my earlier point is like as a process, physics was amazing. Yeah. Right. Uh, as a career, I discovered uh, when I was halfway through graduate school that all the interesting stuff I was curious about had already been discovered. Oh. And there were lots of really smart people working really hard to make really, really small advances in knowledge. Uh-huh. And so uh, I ended up sort of getting the courtesy PhD and then jumping over to management consulting uh, for two reasons. One, is, the world I'm of sorry. business. What is a courtesy PhD when you say that? Um, I got the PhD. I kind of realized halfway through that I did not want to become a <laughs> physicist. I did not want to become a professional okay. professor or researcher right. of physics. But I stuck around, wrote a thesis and got my degree, but everyone kind of understood that I was not going to like actually do physics. And so they may have been a little bit more, I like to think they were a little uh, more generous and relaxed with me than they might otherwise have been. Oh, 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 okay. But you did get it and you worked on it. And it's not that it was thrown at you as a courtesy. You worked for it. You got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I like to say I goofed around for six and a half years and mm. worked like a maniac for six months. Yeah. I know. I know. So now we're at the point we, where you're working for places like Caltech and Apple. No, Am, what, where? Apple. Um, yes, Apple. I was at Apple Computer from 1997 to 2014. Okay. Now, when you say an Apple evangelist, that you're putting the, the oil in the water together again there, right? One does, they don't. Well, technically, that was the group I ended up working in, ah. was Apple's evangelism group. Oh, well, what is that then? Tell us. So it's funny, there was, uh, it's kind of confusing because I was actually running the Christian fellowship at Apple at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working from a, a new boss who was in charge of the evangelism group, who was also a Christian. And, uh, but evangelism in the Apple sense was founded uh, by a guy named Guy Kawasaki, back in the early days of the Macintosh uh, to spread the news about Apple into the business world. Ah, okay. And it had fallen out of disuse, but my boss's predecessor, who describes himself as a flaming atheist, oh. was the one who revived the term evangelist for this group because he said, the real purpose of an evangelist is to make other people happy by solving problems they didn't know they had. Oh. And that was his definition of evangelism. And so uh, my roles, you know, it got, caused quite a bit of confusion because I was both doing sort of uh, right. Christian events and also technology evangelism at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, but yes. that was my final job at Apple was formally as an evangelist, and my entire career was really trying to help Apple engage with new audiences. Okay, uh, from the dark days of '97 uh -huh. up through kind of the rebirth of the iPhone with the iPhone in 2007. Okay, so so now let's say that your latest endeavor, your latest uh, hat, <laughs> is a spiritual entrepreneur. Is that right? Yeah. So I kind of hit my midlife crisis, <laughs> and I had wait, some wait, technology. Wait wait, wait, wait. We want a definition of midlife crisis for everyone. It's different. What age is that? So, so that was so good. That would have been uh, seven years ago. So mid forties. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, I had always thought of myself as an organizational man. I liked working for big companies. I liked having a well-defined role. I liked having a boss. I liked stability, I mean, all the Indian virtues of how you want to live your life. And during the big startup booms uh, in the 90s and the 2000s, I just kind of smiled and said, you go off and do that. I'm happy to stay here. But then there was technology I was working on inside of Apple that I was pitching to management and they decided to go with a competing technology. And wait I sat minute, down one morning and realized. Wait a minute. Go ahead. Finish. Tell me you realized okay. this is the big and part. <laughs> that I realized that I had something in my belly that I couldn't let go of. And oddly enough, I've been studying startups for the last few years, previous few years, purely out of intellectual curiosity. Had no desire to do a startup, had no plans to do a startup. I just thought this was fascinating. I said, oh, I have this problem here that I want to solve. And I can't do it here. Maybe I should build a startup to solve this problem, to build this technology and bring it into the world. And at the same time, I said, you know, there's something about uh, the chance to start from scratch and define my own values. And so I tried to make it not just a technical or financial endeavor, but a spiritual endeavor about the kind of change I wanted to bring into the world. I see. And that became my journey. Uh, as what I now call a spiritual entrepreneur. Well, as I see it, you had one fundamental problem, Ernie. Midlife is not 45, it's 75. <laughs> <laughs> so you could have saved yourself. I mean, that's a, you know, she should have talked around to people. <laughs> they would have told you. <laughs> So now what does this spiritual entrepreneur do today? That's a good question. Um, so I did my startup. I had a series of misadventures uh, or, or fast, fantastic learning experiences, as yeah. I prefer to call them. Yeah. And ended up uh, at a mid-level IT job at a startup in Palo Alto, where I, mm -hmm. I'm still employed today. Mm -hmm. And I have a wonderful boss who is very encouraging about my side activities like this. And, and he just um, may be watching, so he's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He, he, I call him, yeah, he, he's my patron saint. Because what I discovered was the ideas I want to build, uh, one, I don't understand them well enough to explain them to people and trying to launch a business and build profits and venture capital is not a good fit for those kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing now is mostly I have my day job. Uh, I've got a great boss. I have interesting projects to work on and I have free time where I can work on my spiritual projects on the side. And some of them have the potential to generate revenue. Some of them don't, okay, okay, uh, but okay, I can experiment we... with those sure. now, without let's... the pressure to have to make a business make out of money, it yet. Right. So let's imagine, um, give me an idea of what your spiritual projects are. Give me one, all right? Just give me one, slow, okay. say it slow. <laughs> I'll go with the, the simple one. Oh. Um, let, me, let me just finish my story about science and religion oh, sure, because sure. that was a, the teaser sure. from the beginning because that's the easy throwaway question, okay. right? Is that the point is that I view science and religion from the perspective of techniques rather than authorities. Mm. And the authorities, especially when they're insecure, will often disagree with each other and yes. create conflict. But the techniques are both valid and complementary. 
And so that's how I reconciled this issue of science and religion. And as a segue into that, one of the challenges that I have discovered uh, or run into that I just recently found an answer to, which is that um, there's an organization called the Minerva Project. They run a university centered out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, and they talk about trying to separate content from context. Uh -huh. So for example, you learn how to solve problems in chemistry, in physics, mm -hmm. in math. Um, and then you have a very different way of answering questions in English and in communications. Um, and they said, wait, traditional universities have a professor who loves their discipline and you're expected to absorb the material and transfer it, transfer it somewhere else uh, on your own. And I said, yes. And oh, by the way, that's exactly what every church sermon I've ever heard has been. They give you an idea in their context and you're supposed to figure out how to apply it in other contexts. Right. And they had this brilliant idea of coming up with hashtags of transferable concepts and saying, learn the concepts on your own time watching a video. And then what we will do in our in-class sessions is teach you how to understand and apply those concepts in different contexts. Okay, may I speak? Please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you were saying that you look at them um, through techniques, right? Uh, or is that the word you use, techniques? Not yeah. as authorities, all right? So yeah. the techniques, can you give me one of a spirituality and one of a science that are similar? You're saying it now, but I need it to be broken down a little bit better, a little more. Yeah, in fact, this is exactly the point I was trying to get to with the Minerva story, mm -hmm. is that we have all these great, brilliant, powerful truths and ideas, but they're embedded in a very narrow historical context or professional discipline. Mm -hmm. And the idea for Minerva was to say, okay, let's pull these things apart into transferable concepts that we can practice. So for example, yeah. uh, one of the uh, techniques that's common to theology and philosophy is close reading of documents. Oh, to go good. through right. a, a text, a Bible study, for yeah. example. Right. I had my friend Elijah Ware on oh, uh, I a few weeks. I was, I was just arguing him with him this morning I about metaphysics him. on the Wisdom app. <laughs> I love him. He's, he is a, such a delight. He is. But so the idea of close reading, we look and say, okay, these are uh, what you perceive in the passage. These are all the other authorities who have spoken about this passage. Mm -hmm and then try to go through a deliberative process where you sort through, well, this idea over here seems to conflict with this idea, but maybe it can be reconciled this way. So there's a discursive, deliberate process of looking at texts, collecting data, yes. Yes. Uh, analyzing them, and trying to, in some cases, build a coherent mental model yes. of what was going on in the text, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, in science, exactly. we do the same thing, yeah. but with the physical world instead right. of with documents. You try to right. look at the information, you draw data from it, you uh, form uh, a, a tentative hypothesis, you consult other sources to yes, corroborate and it, and then you publish your model. They're all written documents. Right, and the interesting thing, yeah, is that the uh, upside of physics is that we have the concept of formal models and testable right. experiments. Right. Uh, the downside of physics is that we tend to be historically limited by math and not everything neatly fits into traditional mathematics. Right. And so this where these things are, and also you know, the methods of science are an awkward fit for historical subjects. 
Uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. and, so, and so, uh, and also things larger than, um, a bridge or, or more complicated than a bridge, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to have great difficulty with scientific methods and then you get into other methods. So anyway, that's an example of some of the different techniques and some of the similarities and differences. Mm-hmm. And so one of the goals was trying to figure out what are the core things that are useful and important from the perspective of spirituality. And that led to this, uh, my most recent project, which uh, you're helping me figure out how to pronounce, which okay. is, I think, uh, zoosophy, zoosophy, or being a zoosopher. Yeah, zoosophy. And the idea zoosopher. is... Go on. Yes. That's the it? basic idea is to figure out what is the hard part of being spiritual. Mm-hmm. And my current hypothesis is that there's two fundamental tensions involved in being human, or perhaps even in existence in general. Mm -hmm. And that is the tension between individuating and connecting. Mm. You hit it on the nose. You hit it on the nose. Beautiful. Hats off to you. Very, very, very nicely put. Bravo. Okay, and what's interesting... Oh, sorry. No, no, no. So I've been playing with this theory... And the, the basic idea is that, you know, we start in early childhood, we start by connecting, right? The first couple of years are all about connecting. And then the second two years, the ter- terrible twos are all about individuating. And we have to connect in order to be part of a family and survive, but we have to individuate in order to form our own families and flourish and generate the next generation. And this tension in this dynamic is interesting because different uh, philosophical and religious traditions tend to emphasize one over the other. Mm -hmm. The Stoics tend to be very focused on the individual and the Buddhists tend to be very focused on the communal, at least in their language. Their practices, in fact, often incorporate both. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was useful for me to have this framework to understand that. What's interesting is that there is a third dimension that I came across, which I have not come up with a good name for yet. Maybe you Mm. can help me with it. Shoot. Which is that, so my current problem statement is that we all live in systems. These can be biological systems, physical systems, economic or social systems, whatever. And systems have entities and relationships and labels for a simple mm-hmm. model. And with it, and I describe uh, the current way the system is categorized as its logos, as in mm-hmm. bio logos yes. or techno logos, mm-hmm. right? The study of, or the word, mm-hmm. the concept, the organizing principle. Yeah. And the idea is that In any given system, there's a current organizing principle which defines what is real and what is possible. Mm -hmm. And within those worlds, there's a lot of things that you can do to connect and individuate between them. But periodically, you will encounter a crisis, like my crisis, my midlife crisis, (laughs) uh, where I said, okay, the systems and the roles I have are not working for me. I need to do something else. And uh, the best word I found so far is this idea of christening creating a new name or a new logos, mm-hmm. where we say that, okay, this uh, system I'm in is not working right. We need to redesign, refactor, re-engineer, mm-hmm. transcend uh, our current system to build a new system. Mm-hmm. And that to me is one of the fascinating things about being human, as opposed to say a computer, right. is that we have the possibility to look at our current system and it's not easy, yeah. but it's possible yeah. to transcend that and say, ah, okay, I can see how this system is not working and, and I can start a quest, uh, which may be trivial or maybe mm-hmm. generational yeah. in order to come up with a new logos for how we connect and individuate. Yeah, yeah. 
So that's my current project. <laughs> interesting. This is interesting. This is interesting. Um, let me ask you if you um, work directly with individuals, or is it a matter of projects that you manage and you, you direct? Or is there any outreach with the community that in some way feed into your projects? Yeah, it's a fair question. I, I was thinking about this. In some ways, I feel <laughs> like I'm question. an anti-guru yeah. in that I think most of your guests, they really care about people and they really want to help people, right? Mm. I'm into the intellectual, no. which means, the, which <laughs> no, by, which means uh, the, the ones, well, you really seem they to care say, about people, Claudia. They say they do, but through their words, you can see that's not the case. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe, hopefully I'm the opposite then. In that, <laughs> as an intellectual, my strongest emotional relationships are with abstract concepts. Uh -huh. I hear you. <laughs> and so the way I look at it is that I have different communities that I interact with, but mm -hmm. sort of when, I'm, when I have my project hat on, mm -hmm. I'm saying like, this is an area I am struggling with. I would love you to come struggle along with me as I try right. to figure these things out because I have, I don't claim to have any answers, but I have some very important questions. Yes. And I have some ideas just that might like, address that. Just like your conversation with Elijah this morning, Elijah Ware. Is that correct? <laughs> so you are probably in yeah. some way reaching out to another person to share those musings that you have of an intellectual. Right. Well, he, he, he volunteered. He just sort of jumped onto my, uh, <laughs> my wisdom conversation, which I love him for. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I, I'm trying to, so I have that. And then I also separately, like try to understand when I'm connecting with a human being, uh, and I don't do this as often as, as I might like to, is take yeah. off the project hat of the problems that I yes. am concerned about mm -hmm. and try to focus in on, okay, who are you? What do you want? And what do you need to help you move forward? Or how can I, uh, create an experience with you that makes you better able to be more fully yourself, mm -hmm. uh, connecting in order to individuate. And so uh, I try to switch between the hats of trying to work on the theory mm -hmm. and then and working on myself to, okay, now can I set that aside and see where that will help other people? Mm -hmm. And so I don't have any formal uh, efforts in the second category yet. It's more sort of ad hoc relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, partly because I don't really feel like I know exactly which kinds of problems I can help people solve effectively. Yeah. And so I don't want to uh, uh, invite people to something that uh, is not a good fit. Right. Now, you uh, mentioned when you were talking about physicists and their fundamental problems, too. One of them was <laughs> that they. No, the fundamental gifts, fundamental gifts of a no, physicist. No, you talked about <laughs> being frustrated because they don't teach or they're not able to, uh, their frustration in the position of a teacher or someone who yeah. shares their knowledge. Yeah. Now, my point here is that since you're not an academic, um, and from what I see, you have never been an academic, um, you don't have the... Uh, obligation, because it is an obligation, I'm sorry to say, to publish. I'm curious as to knowing, um, you know, why I'm asking you this, Ernie, if you publish, because writing down our intellectual and philosophical musings always helps us prove a point and get critical feedback. And this is what I also 
wanted to know when I said, do you interact with the community? Is there any forum where you do that? Do you write uh, any of the things? Oh, yeah, I am. Um, I'm somewhere between prolific and narcissistic, I, I guess I would say. I have three blogs. I have <laughs> uh, at, least, uh, two or two, at least two active YouTube channels. Yeah. Uh, I have three podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, one of which is with my father doing a book study, which is the <laughs> most active one currently. Good. Uh, another one uh, that's kind of bounces between podcast and YouTube channel. And then I'm on the Wisdom app. And so uh, I see these more as documentations of in-process research yeah. Yeah. than necessarily uh, well-defined um, nuggets of wisdom that I expect people to take mm -hmm. seriously. Work in uh, progress. Mm -hmm. Work in progress, yes. Yeah. But I, I definitely uh, love the fact, uh, especially I've been you know, playing with the Wisdom app these last couple of weeks, where people will jump on and interact with you over random topics. I don't know topics. that Wisdom app. Can you tell us about it? it yeah, it just launched uh, two weeks ago. Uh -huh. It's called at uh, Join Wisdom is the Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've heard of Clubhouse or audio yeah. social yes, networks. Yes, Clubhouse I have. Yes. So it's kind of all the rage here. Yeah, so mm -hmm. this is kind of a reaction to Clubhouse, which is kind of turning into kind of a uncurated kind of uh, mob sort of panel discussion type of format. Mm -hmm. And that wisdom is uh, very minimalist and designed for one-on-one -on -one conversations. Mm, and uh, Doya, yeah. the leader, her vision, her vision was that people have questions and we want to give them a safe place yeah. where they can find answers. Yeah, that's nice. And she had Kenny G on there as their big mm. uh, breakout nice. uh, session where he talks about the practice of being a musician. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, it's it, it's a very lightweight system. I don't have to come up with, you know, tags and uploads and contents. Right. I just pick a title, pick three right. tags and start recording and then I'm right. done. There's no messaging, there's right. no right. to-do list. It's a very lightweight kind of uh, snack way. But I've had the most fascinating interactions like our friend Elijah, oh, we just randomly great. ran into each other and had this these deep great emotional interactions yeah. in five minute segments. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So there is this outreach in some way. There's always this ongoing conversation. Oh, I would say it's connection, right? Outreach to me implies mm -hmm. that I am trying to give something to other ah, okay. people. Connection. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a little bit more arrogant or modest than that. I'm not sure which mm -hmm. in that, like, I, I, I definitely believe that um, knowledge approaches truth via honest collaborative inquiry, mm -hmm. right? That to me was the essence of being a physicist mm -hmm. is that we have a community of practice where we ask each other the hard questions and suggest alternatives to push us to a greater appreciation mm -hmm. of something that is maybe not the truth, but truer. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love interactions like this with you. I'm mm -hmm. sure that's why your listeners yeah. love your show is that they're probably yelling at their phone or writing stuff down <laughs> or hopefully engaging with these ideas. And especially I love the diversity of voices that you managed mm -hmm. to host yeah, on this space. Yeah. Um, let me ask you uh, one thing. In, you know, your road has taken you here talking with me. As far as you can project, um, what do you see the future of uh, institutionalized religion? and other forms of religion, do they have a future? It, will there be something different? Will there be larger, you know, bodies or institutions that overcome, you know, instead of all of the different forms of Christianity, will they band together? What do you think? Have you ever thought of that? 
Yes. Um, how long do you have? <laughs> Let's give you the uh, five minutes. I was minute going to version. make this a closing statement. <laughs> Go on. Oh, okay. I can, I can make it short then. Um, civilization goes through waves. So, and so the, um, there was the Greco-Roman wave of the centralized empire where church and state were one. Right. Then there was the medieval times, the Christendom, where church was one and states were many mm -hmm. and subordinate. Mm -hmm. uh, after the Treaty of Westphalia we're, and the Reformation, we're in a world where uh, states are one, uh, states are many, and churches are many. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, multinationals are becoming their own sort of third force in the same yeah. scale as churches yeah. or nations. And the future seems to be that we need a new level uh, a, a new meta level of coordination, yeah. let's call it that. Like That's, the best thing yeah. that the Catholic Church did was keep peace within its borders mm -hmm. by acting as sort of an, an adult uh, at the price of often being a lot of oppressive to certain people on the margins, but also being antagonistic towards its neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so the really interesting social organizational challenge is, is it possible to come up with a... Um, um, I like the word generative mm -hmm. as sort of the combination of individuation and connecting a more generative environment that doesn't require an external enemy mm. in order to defend its existence that is yet strong enough to enforce a certain level of civility and cooperation among its members mm. while still maximizing their diversity. Oh, gee. And my current best hypothesis for that is something I call datocracy, a term I stole from this uh, wonderful uh, engineer called Tom Guild. And the basic idea is that if we can agree for how we, uh, in technical terms, share the results of our experiments. Right. Or you think about it this way, it's like, you know, like, uh, like homeschooling at its best and hey, you can raise your kids however you want, but you need to report their scores against this so we can see how they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if we could come up with a minimal set yeah. of what are the things that we need to know about each other to live in community together and agree on that minimum set of how we're gonna share information and then give each other maximum diversity for how we live our lives. Um, that seems like the kind of thing that would allow us to create, let's call it a common platform for how we function as humanity. Mm -hmm. And in that world, you could have pockets built around different traditions or values mm -hmm. Um, but then they can coexist on this common substrate where we can make rational decisions about how to trust each other, how to organize. And uh, it's, it's sort of uh, replacing the Catholic Church with uh, a, uh, what my friends call a data hub. Is that like, we, we trust people not based on a priest blessing the Detocracy. Detocracy. The idea is that what I need most from you is it's kind of like your questionnaire. Right. You yeah. didn't ask me about which church I went to or do right. I believe in these truths. Right. You asked me a series of questions that mattered to you. And using that data, you said, ha, mm -hmm. huh, this is a good fit. I can see how I can have this conversation. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the visions is that, you know, if we could learn to ask the right questions of one another, mm -hmm. we wouldn't need to make uh, shortcut decisions yeah. based on tribal affiliation mm. or historical identities. Yeah. So that's kind of the yeah. so way I see the world going you see the world going or is this the way you would like to see the world going because uh, i i, don't I think know i, I figured who said there. it was the, 
the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Yeah. And okay. so okay. the other phrase that we use in Silicon Valley is the future is already here. Right. It is just not evenly distributed. Right. Bravo. Like yeah. I have a theory about the millennium, which is something Christians, especially in some of my communities, are very obsessed over. What is the millennial? Will Christ return? Is it yeah. real? Is it imaginary? Is it past or future? And I said, you know, from my perspective, even if Christ did return, he wouldn't like be like a, a omnipotent dictator who's like telling everyone what to do all the time. He would come and he would be you know, living in a palace in Jerusalem or whatever. He'd have a finite amount of time. He would have to delegate. And the only difference between now and then would be you would know, uh, you would have some definitive statements about A, what is good, mm -hmm. and B, who has publicly said they'll be accountable to what is good. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, we could start doing that now. In fact, we are already doing that in little pockets of people. Mm -hmm. uh, groups like this are not endorsed by a church. They're not right. certified by a government. Yeah. There's someone saying, you know, hey, this is what I am doing. This is what I believe is good. And, you know, you have an accountability to your listeners to kind of create mm -hmm. things that are of value to them. And it's like, we're already doing this in small yeah. ways and people yeah, yeah. gathered together in communities and organizations. What would it take to sort of formalize that and kick it up a notch. Yeah. And those are the questions I consume myself with is, what are the right questions to be asking? And where are the points of leverage? So yes, my vision of the future is what the world could be with my help. Yeah. And that's how I look at things. Okay. All right. Well, I think this is the best place to end. Thank you so <laughs> okay. much, Ernie. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claudia. It was such visions. a delight to meet you. <laughs> it was so wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>